Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. We're tackling some heavy topics on Let Me Be Frank today. Relativism, modernism, secularism. Good thing we have a brilliant and holy shepherd here to set us straight with the truth. Before we talk with Bishop Frank, we are right in the middle of our first ever Join the Family Pledge Drive. You've been enjoying Let Me Be Frank and many of our other fantastic shows like Catholic Answers Live and Call to Communion, as well as devotionals like the Daily Mass. Veritas is your Catholic station. To keep your Catholic station going and to keep listening to your favorite Catholic shows, please call in now. The number is 475-215-5547. This is the only place here in New York and Connecticut where you can find solid Catholic teaching and uplifting conversations 24 hours a day on the radio and on your phone at 1350 AM and on the Veritas Catholic Network app. All right, the number is 475-215-5547. Pick up the phone and call now, right before the bishop and I get deep into our conversation. It's 475-215-5547. Let's keep your station going strong. All right, so let's get into today's episode of Let Me Be Frank, everybody. It's my great pleasure to introduce the Bishop of Bridgeport, Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good to see you in person today. For, for yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's really been a while. <laughs> still distance, though. Yes, we're still, yeah, we're distance, but at least it's good to see you in person. Yes, likewise, Excellency. And, uh, and maybe it's better that we're in person because we have kind of a deep topic today. Very deep. Yeah. Let's hope we don't drown. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it's very important and relevant to, for these times. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the truth, but or more specifically, we'll start with the idea that there is no truth. So we'll talk about relativism, Excellency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So start by telling us, mm -hmm. what is relativism? Mm -hmm. Well, just as a preamble, relativism, secularism, and modernism basically are different aspects of a what I would consider to be an interlocked reality because if you take one and explore it enough, it'll eventually lead to one or the other. Yes. Right? But relativism is, the, is a great place to start because I think it's foundational in the shift that we have experienced in the last 150 years, away from the objective to the subjective. And that in part is rooted in the movement philosophically and culturally to putting the human person at the center of reality and discussion rather than God or something greater than humanity or human person. So if you consider, you say, well, why make the shift? Okay, if you recall Descartes spoke of cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. So he shifted the focus from perceiving the objective world starting with the he or she who makes the judgment. All right. And all along in these centuries since, it has become more and more progressively a systematic way of approaching reality. But when you consider, for example, all right, the person you're, like myself, how is it, the question, the age-long question is, how do I know that what I am perceiving is objectively real? Or am I adding something to this process? Am I actually seeing this microphone for what it is? Am I encountering it for what it is? It has an objective reality, or is it just totally subjective? That is, I am receiving something, and because I'm interpreting it because of the way I perceive, or the way I think, or the way I'm making judgments, that I'm, I'm permanently separated from it. In which case, the only reference I have is myself, mm -hmm. is, is my subjectivity, right? right? Which, you know, in Platonic, you know, uh, philosophy is the difference between the real and the apparent and all the rest. All right. I mean, to boil it down to more practical terms, because we're not going to get too ethereal. The real, the two aspects of relativism that have enormous impact for us is whether or not there is objective truth and object, objective moral values or norms. Right. And objective moral law. Right. If there is no objective truth, then the person is the standard for truth. And if there is no objective moral law, then you become the objective. You become the standard. Right. And depending on what you believe you to be, that could include your body and the grammar of your body, 
or it could exclude the grammar of your body and you just see yourself as like a spiritual subjectivity not spiritual and corporeal and all that impacts on all the discussions and controversies we have in the modern world today so from my point of view in order for us to explore it we start from a premise that faith and reason complement each other right and because they complement each other and illuminate each other we hold that there is an objective truth in part because it has been revealed to us by the Lord Jesus in part because we do not divorce our body from who we are and because of that there is a natural grammar to who we are and the world in which we inter inter interact with yes so we are not agnostic in that sense sure there is a contribution of the human person right so it may even be that I do not see for example the color red the exact same way you do and people who are colorblind may not see it at all mm -hmm. but what they see is real right yes so the fact that there's a human contribution does not negate that there is an objective presence and there's an objective reality and in the moral law we say that there is an objectivity in two respects that there is an objectivity based in the natural law which is how we are literally made how we complement each other and how society is meant to function based on a premise of love which is then also what's revealed in faith what the Lord taught us in the moral law mm -hmm. which complements the natural law right? right for the modern world I'm being a little bit facetious not facetious a little bit poetic a little bit give me some license here but relativism is very appealing because there are no constrictors yeah there are ultimately no rules that I do not like right right because I'm standard right my values are whatever I feel like they want I want them to be correct right or whatever seems to be and even those who are a, a goodwill I mean te want to do the good not totally capriciously sure nonetheless it is what I perceive it to be what I judge it to be and that can always be fallacious that could that will always be limited because our viewpoint is limited so in my mind the very premise defeats the conclusion because if you consider myself to be the standard and I myself am always limited then how can it be in any sense even govern my own life yes. that it's not always subject to revision which if you hold that position and some people do creates widespread anxiety yeah because you're a ship on the sea with no anchor right yep right. and we've spoken many times about the effect in society in general okay um, not to get political but the first debate between our two presidential candidates between the president and his contender I never imagined I would have seen anything like that in my life yeah <laughs> right you go back to on YouTube to the clips of Nixon and Kennedy and they described it as acrimonious and yeah. <laughs> you must be kidding right. <laughs> yeah and I raise that not simply to judge the men involved that's not my point but the point is that there isn't a structure if I may that allows for a civil discourse because in our world because everything is seems to be relative you create it yourself for your own benefit yeah and the modicum of rules or whatever it may be in the past even standard protocols behavior are always subject to what I ultimately decide right whether you agree or disagree so I think that leads to the dissolution of a common good it leads to it leads to a dysfunctioning of society it can actually cause absolute chaos yeah right yeah I mean C.S. Lewis talks about that in the abolition of man he says that um, uh, if if our we can't we can't have in that kind of scenario we can't have reason determine our values because there's reason needs an objectivity to compare itself against and so then if there's no reason we're just 
following our emotions, right. and there's no such thing as ethics in right. that case. Okay, so if this was a boxing match, and you had objective truth on one side and subjective truth on the other, and they were gonna fight it out, right? how would you pick a winner, ultimately? Which is an interesting question. Yeah. Any thoughts? <laughs> well, because subjective truth is on one side, I mean, it's up to that side whether they win or not, right? I mean, not but but objectively. Ah, ah, ah. Now wait, wait. Okay. okay, let's let's go. With the, all right. So, if the premise that there is an objective truth, and there is also an objective structure, yes, to reality that we can perceive, then, if that is true, those who choose only to have a subjective truth should suffer consequences from the decision. Right. So I would contend the boxing match is not between each other. Objective truth can just sit in the corner and watch and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and you will know by its fruit. And there is a restlessness built in the spirit of humanity that is not meant to end in anxiety. Yeah. It's meant to end in a discovery. So when you look at a society that's growing in anxiety, right, that's growing in fear, you have to say, well, why? <laughs> Perhaps the premise you're operating out of needs to be looked at or revised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we see the great struggle in the COVID pandemic where there are well-meaning people who do not see the need to restrict their behavior for a common good. And they're well-meaning people, many of them. Yeah. I don't think they're doing it maliciously, yeah. but the premise they're operating out of has to be really looked at. Yeah. Because the truth is greater than me. Right. So I think the fruits of it are one way. Now, the difficulty is that those who, who, who ascribe to a more of a relativistic approach, uh, it's very hard to have them and to lead them almost in a non-judgmental way to examine the fruits of their life, mm -hmm. okay? It almost becomes a restlessness that leads to an anxiety, that leads to th this, as I kind of say, not being comfortable in your own skin. That can then just become a frenetic activity for the more, the different, the more, because I have to keep looking for something that's gonna satisfy or something that's gonna give me purpose or object. It sounds like today. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly, right. Now, the question is, does it infiltrate in the church? Yes, I'm glad you asked. The answer is yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because in fact, all right, if you have a relativistic understanding of truth, then you can approach the truths of the faith based in the truth who is Jesus Christ and reduce it to um, a menu of a restaurant. I will take these four, that five, mm -hmm. this six, and then the rest of it, somebody else can eat. Right. But, and again, many people who legitimately struggle with understanding what we believe and why we believe and applying it in their lives make a terrible mistake not to realize that the whole menu is the meal. Yeah. And the menu is designed purposefully by the author of all truth, who is the Lord himself, so that all the pieces are there for the fulfillment of human life. Yeah. The fullness. Right. Yeah. I have come that may have life and life in abundance. Yes. Right. So again, they don't fall into the trap to say everything is subjective or everything's relativistic, but on the other hand, they don't find the path that the Lord is offering that, yeah, struggle. Yeah, you have to struggle with the teaching on contraception. Yeah. You have to struggle with the teaching of um, um, whatever else we may have, yeah. capital punishment, in the moral sphere and in the doctrinal sphere. Yeah, you have to struggle with angels if you think they're just mythology, which they're not. Right. Which we talked about last week. Yes. Or the pursuit of holiness, or the idea of self-sacrifice, or that love is a choice and not an emotion. Or we could go on and on and on. Well, that's all part of objective truth. Yeah. And so you find it in the church too. Yeah. You know, and I know a lot of people, especially in college, but also through young adulthood, who 
left the faith in its entirety because they they wanted to pick and choose and they wanted to um they wanted to do certain things in their lifestyle that the church um in her wisdom said will not lead us to happiness mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. and so they just they they walked away from the faith mm-hmm. and it's uh well, let me draw an, uh, uh, an analogy or paint a picture, if I may. Many of those individuals who may have walked away were cheated. Well, because I'm not a mathematician, okay, and don't claim to be. But I have dear friends of mine who are, and you look at the complex formulas they kind of look at, which for me is just like, I, I don't know what it is. And it makes perfect sense to them. And for them to get to the conclusion is almost the afterthought. It's the process Hmm. by which you reason. That's where the genius is. So these young people come to a conclusion about our moral teachings for, when in fact our moral teachings are applications of more basic principles of faith that have never been taught to them and they have never been given the opportunity to ask questions and wrestle with. Right. Right? We've talked about the relationship of reason and faith, yeah. the, the understanding of what a human person is. No one has ever, the historicity, which we'll talk about when we talk about modernism, yeah. right? They haven't, no one has ever said to them, what does this mean to you? Yeah. And let's talk about, give it to me in words, I'll give you what I think it is in words, and let's talk about it. So th- without a basement, you create the fifth floor, the whole thing's gonna collapse. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it because a lot of people look at uh, what the church teaches as a set of rules. I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this. But instead, it's the, it's the opposite. It's to live life to the fullest, to, in, to have the, the fullest, fullness of happiness. These, these are the guidelines. Absolutely. See, what's interesting is in contemporary Christianity, we often do not speak of the substance of Jesus' preaching. Interesting. Hmm. You know, it was the turn to the person of Jesus. He is Savior and Redeemer. And we came to understand him precisely coming to offer the gift of salvation. But he also spoke of a kingdom. And how often do you hear that in preaching or in catechesis? Yeah. And the kingdom is already and not yet. So the church, it doesn't exist in, in the mind and heart of Jesus to deny or disparage this life. It's meant through this very discussion of leading people to the objective truth that they may find the foundation to live a fruitful life, yeah. not a happy life and not an easy life. The master didn't have it either, right. so get in line, <laughs> right? Yes. But, but a fruitful life, a joyful life, and as the harbinger of a kingdom that will never end. So how do we, if we have a loved one or a friend or neighbor who... Uh, falls away to another prod- religion, yeah, another religion mm-hmm. or no religion. Mm-hmm. How do we begin discussing this? Because, because mm-hmm. Excellency, you have a good way of, of taking these ideas and really giving us practical advice on mm-hmm. things. So, mm-hmm. Okay, so now if you came to me and I were your pastor and you presented this, the first advice I would give you is take a deep breath hmm. and take solace and comfort in the fact that if they have chosen another religion, they are still searching for God. Mm-hmm. That is an advantage we can build on. For those who have left all organized religion, they are still looking for God. But it is much more of an anonymous one. Take some solace in that as well. The real reason that people disaffiliate from Christianity, but particularly from the Catholic Church, is it is the reverse of creating a relationship. So faith is an invitation to encounter the Lord Jesus and to endure a personal relationship with him by his grace. Mm -hmm. So that relationship is mediated through the community, the sacraments, the scripture, and the world and in my own experience. I don't have a direct experience of the Lord Jesus right? until we get to heaven. right? So it's mediated. So when those means of mediation have not been fruitful or responsive, have not dealt with me, 
and the questions I'm struggling with, the relationship that should exist begins to weaken. And when it gets to a point where it's more effort to work on the relationship, you, many people walk away. Mm -hmm. Now, that's been true from the ages. What's particularly true in our age is what we're talking about. Because one of the premises of having a relationship is that there's somebody out there to have a relationship with. And that what is claimed of him is not opinion, but may be true. Yeah. That I receive, that is revealed to me, not that I choose to believe, not that I choose to consider true, or that I decide is true. So if you grow up in a world where it is all about you in the end, then to receive Jesus is one thing. To receive Jesus and a pre-existing community, which is the church, is another thing. And to receive Jesus and a pre-existing church and all of the tradition that comes with it, which you will interpret as other people deciding this for me, as if we all decided to make your life miserable by mm -hmm. making these rules, um, is a hard sell. So all along the way, those relationships should be deepening and easily can be blocked. Yeah. So then you got to rebuild a relationship. That's the advice. And it starts with this personal relationship. Yeah. Right? And what's heartbreaking to many parents is that their children and grandchildren don't want it. So you're like Monica. You pray for them. And you use every opportunity, when it is appropriate, to raise the question with them. Mm -hmm. And sooner or later, something will happen that will raise the existential questions. Right? What's life all about? Where is my life going? And now that I'm struggling, for example, with this suffering or sickness, what's left? Mm and the grace that's hidden in the COVID pandemic is that many people who were set in their ways in February now in a very different place, contemplating either their own mortality or someone else's. That can be the first crack in this edifice that has been created based on relativism. Yeah. That the church needs to be like water that gently goes into the crack and allows it to slowly soften mm -hmm. the hardness. Yeah. That's, uh, and so, and we, so we need to be ready, but it's going to be the Holy Spirit that opens the door and that seeps into the crack and right. that offers the opportunity. Right. Yeah. Once in my life, I had a situation like this where a friend of mine basically walked away and I'm not ashamed to say this, but I prayed that he fall on his face. Hmm. Yeah, no, I get it. Not be hurt, right? but fall on his face. Yep. Because it's when you, you, you pick yourself up and you say, hmm, why did that happen? Ah, well, let me help you clean yourself off. Yeah. And let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. That's mm -hmm. why... That's why suffering is not something to, to run away from either. It's salvific. It's salvific. Right? In the end, you know, in the Sunday scriptures, we talk about the building the vineyard and building the wall and it yielded wild grapes. Why? Because it wasn't pruned. Yeah. Right? That was another ritual of fall that I didn't talk about when we did our podcast the last yeah. time, which was the pruning of the vineyard. Yeah. My, my dear friend, his father, took great pride. It was an all-day ritual. Hmm. And you take this luscious vine and reduce it to like a stump. You look at yourself and say, this thing is dead. Mm -mm. So suffering is a pruning. Yeah. Which then strips away all of this nonsense that we create and allows you to encounter what is. Yeah. What is. Yeah. Awesome. Excellency, let's take a quick break. Uh, hey, by the way, this break is a great time to call in to our Join the Family Pledge Drive. The number is 475-215-5547. Again, 475-215-5547. We will continue this conversation with Bishop Frank Caggiano when we come back. 
Hey everyone, Carlo Broussard here, apologist and speaker at Catholic Answers. As a frequent guest from Catholic Answers Live, I can attest to the great importance of Veritas Catholic Network and Catholic Radio. And since you're listening, you want to keep it alive and growing in New York. To keep this going, we need you to call now and make a pledge. You can call 475-215-5547 or donate safe and secure at www.veritascatholic.com. Keep listening to 1350 AM on your radio and catch up anytime with your favorite shows on the Veritas Catholic Network app. Don't miss out on top shows such as Catholic Answers Live, EWTN, Ave Maria, Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Congiano. Three more local shows will be hitting the air this fall that you don't want to miss. Call now and thank you for your support and your prayers. God bless. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, so we, that was a fascinating discussion about relativism. And um, let's move on to some of relativism's philosophical cousins. Oh, secularism then comes next. We'll start with secularism. Secularism yes. comes next. Because secularism develops alongside of relativism, trying to separate the parties. Okay, so tell us, yeah. Right? So in its, in its simplest definition, secularism promotes that which is non-religious and seeks to separate the religious from the non-religious, which is secular. Mm-hmm. In, its, in its basic terms. So it tries to organize discussion, thought, and society in those terms. In part because we're going separate ways. That would make sense. So for example, in the philosophical world, the emphasis is on the material, the emphasis is on the natural, the emphasis is what you could measure and quantify, all the rest. In the political world, it's kind of why one of the fundamental principles of our country, the separation of church mm-hmm. and state. Right. All right. And of course, theologically, there's no, there would be no intersection, right? Okay. Couple of things, though. These are my conclusions. Our listeners could disagree. Mm-hmm. Right. First, um, secularism can be more of a, Uh, softer, more accommodating garden variety or a more militant, hostile form. Yeah. And we are seeing in our own age now the, 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 trans, the, uh, the uh, movement from the more gentler form to the much more militant. Because just in the political sphere, to want to create an egalitarian secular world we have gone from a stance where larger society had benign neglect of religion, which is precisely what the founding fathers meant. They meant that there would be no established religion, but that there would be room for religion in the public square, but it would not be favored in any way by the government. To an environment now that's a militaristic secularism that wants religion excised right from the public square yeah and from view right yeah hence the struggle for what we call religious liberty which is rooted in our fundamental right we have a right of freedom of religion yes all right now okay this is one of my premises secularism is itself a quasi-religion yeah because it has a sense of belief that in and of itself it cannot prove, right? That you have to adhere to and believe, right? Such as the primacy of the human person, such as that the community is at service to the person, not the other way around. Right. These are basic fundamental decisions, premises, principles that you can't prove, but you believe. Yeah. Well, in my mind, it is a somewhat of a religious world worldview yes in which case then this is not a question of the secular 
versus the non-secular, the religious. This almost becomes one religious viewpoint versus others. Correct, right, yeah. Others being more traditionally structured, and this being much more amorphous, because in relativism, it could be whatever you want it to be. Right. So I think there has to come a reckoning that there is not in this country solely this desire to keep a civil, non-religious, common forum where we could all interact as Americans. I don't think that exists if secularism is powering it because in and of itself has both some principles you have to believe in and consequences that you need to inherit. Yeah. It's more organized than people will let on to be, to, to say. Yeah. Okay. And therefore, having, having said that, it seems to me that sec- the secularist um, premise needs to be challenged precisely because it is, in, in, at least in my world, in my, the way I see it, is a, a, a morph, it's, it's, a, it, it's a loosely organized set of principles that create a worldview that we have a better worldview. Yeah. And we need to challenge you. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> allow me to tell you a story. I was with a very prominent politician a few years ago and had the privilege, this politician asked me to see him in anticipation of another event we were going, so we just chatted. And believe it or not, we fell on this question of freedom of religion. And we, we were chatting, and I quickly realized that his definition of religion and mine were very different. Hmm. So finally I said to him, I said, so what in the end do you think is protected in the Constitution? And he said, well, you know, your ability to worship. You know, you could go to a synagogue or a mosque or a church or whatever or, and a Sikh temple. And, and the, the Constitution says you're free to build them, you're free to own them, you're free to worship in them. Right. And I said to him, I said, but that all may be well and true, but that's only a small piece of freedom of religion. What you are describing is freedom of worship, mm-hmm. right. not freedom of religion. Yeah. Because most organized religions mandate that that which you believe should inform, affect, and change how you act yes. in the larger society. Right. So if you tell me I have to do this, like I have to provide insurance for contraception, when it violates my religious belief, or I can't do X when my faith requires it, then you are infringing on freedom of religion. Yeah. Not freedom of worship, freedom of religion. And last I looked in the Constitution, it says freedom of religion, does say freedom of worship. But you see, that is the insidious um, effect of secularism. Yes. Yep. Because what it wants to do is take all that is, quote-unquote, religion, out of the public square. So it reduces freedom of religion to freedom of worship. And that's the great struggle. We need to literally take it out of the four walls of our sacred spaces, in our cases, our churches, and put it back into the public square. And let the dueling worldviews or the dueling systems of ultimately what is religious belief fight it out and see what yields the greater fruit. Yeah. So that's so interesting because um, the secularism in that in that scenario, then it it forces you to practice your religion internally inside yourself and not in the way you act in your day to day life. All the while, it's pushing its own set of uh, of ways for you to act in outside. So that would really do something to somebody's psyche. Spirit, I mean, this, this, this dual... Um, right. In other words, yes, it makes, well, it makes obvious that we are in some way being ostracized so that we are strangers in our own public square 
and we are pilgrims. Yeah. Now, what the secular world does not understand is that when you persecute true believers, you are giving the church all of the opportunity to be renewed. Hmm. The church is at its best when it is persecuted. Yeah. Okay. Our fear is how many Christians will fall away. Right. But they have fallen away before, like in the Donatist controversies in the third century, right? Um, in so many other times. And we don't want that to happen. Yes. But it should not be the reason not to engage. Yes. Yep. Okay? Engage as a Christian is meant to engage. And I would just simply say this. If we want to expose secularism for the militant, adversarial worldview that it has become and engage it, we have to do it by our rules, not their rules. Yeah. So how do you engage? How does a Christian fight? It's love. It's love. You, you do it for the good of the other. Yeah. You do it for the good of the people who have the opposing opinion. Yeah. Right. Our goal is to get everybody to heaven if that is God's will. So I, I don't want to cast this in terms of a fight that's going to have a um, that has almost like a boxing sense, because in the end we enter the ring, right? Not to knock our opponent down, but to engage our opponent and show the opponent that we truly love them and we have a better way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we're offering to them. Yeah, and our disposition as we do that is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That is why I think the evangelization of young people and young adults has to begin, okay, in engaging at least those who are interested in the social teachings of the church. Mm. Because secularism has usurped that. Yeah and has given it humanitarian, whatever that means, uh, principles and goals. Yeah. So we do it for the good of humanity. Why? Because last time local, all of humanity one day is gonna die, so I don't get it. Where's the eternal value? Well, there is no eternal value. Then why, why would I invest in it? Because yeah. I feel good doing it today and tomorrow I'm miserable because I'm exhausted for all the work I did the day before. <laughs> right. I mean, tell me, tell me what's ultimately worth investing and stop distracting me. Yeah so that I don't ask the ultimate questions. We will ask the ultimate questions, and then you'll see how secularism in the end doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, and as you said, I mean, to begin with, it's, it's such a lie anyway, because the, the, the highest value in secularism seems to be tolerance when it itself is so intolerant of actual um, organized religions. Because there's an inherent contradiction. Yes. Because it has to be tolerance, Steve, right? Because I, I, the premise is I'm going to decide what the ultimate value is. Right. But then it becomes intolerant because it, this world is not made of just me. Right. So now suddenly you come with a different opinion. Now why should I be bothered with you? So now suddenly the tolerance becomes intolerance. It's a contradiction. Yeah. Yep. Let's just show them. Let's show, show the young people Ooh. that. <laughs> well, Christians have to live it first. <laughs> That's true. Very true. <laughs> Um, uh, let's, if we, if we could, let's switch tracks a little bit mm -hmm. and, and talk about, you know, within the church itself and we'll address modernism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no landmines here, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are. Okay. So modernism is an interesting reality because it's not really a, a uniform set of doctrines or principles or it really was the magisterium in this case uh, Pius IX Leo and Pius X their attempt to stop what they saw as unwarranted and foolish harmful attempts to reconcile Catholic faith to modern culture yep. as it was evolving and more specifically, there were, at least to my estimation, there were three, three issues. 
The first is what we talked about with relativism. Mm -hmm. The seed of relativism, right? Ob there's no objective truth. It's only subjective truth. Right. Number one. All right. Number two is the whole question of historicity, mm. which we've talked about. How does a single historical act in a particular place, in a corner of the world, have eternal significance? And in the creation of the scriptures, for example, which has divine inspiration and human agency, with the introduction of the historical critical method. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. To look at sources and fonts and how it was developed and edited in its cultural context and all the rest. How do you use that in service of faith? not as a means by which you can undermine faith. Right. And in this early days, they saw it specifically and wholly as undermining faith. You know, and, and then of course there was a political piece to it too because there was a political struggle, particularly in Europe, to separate political organization from the church and from the control of the church. Mm -hmm. So Pius IX and Syllabus of Errors, that's a read. Right? And at that time, he had great fear that these were seeds that were going to be planted that were going to create chaos yeah. and confusion and undermine the faith. And a lot of that we have seen. Yeah. yeah. And not because the magisterium has taught it, but because of the attitudes that we have brought into our daily lives as Christians. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even, um, not to tread too closely to another landmine, but even with Vatican II, the hermeneutic of rupture versus the hermeneutic of continuity. Right. Well, see, the church, the church, there are some fundamental dynamics in the church that need to be left unimpeded. And one of them is lex orandi, lex credendi that how the people of God pray over the long term also reveals what we believe. And we are always better when we go from practice to theory. Mm -hmm. And we always tread on thin ice when we go from theory to practice. Yes. Because it may not be received. Yeah. And the perfect example of that is Arius. Right. Okay, when 80%, it is estimated, of the church became Arian because it was theory being imposed to say this is philosophically logical, it's easy to understand, it separates Jesus, makes him highest of the angels, mm -hmm. highest of all creation, but not totally, fully, and completely God. Right. To a logical mind in a philosophical context, yeah, okay, we have an intermediary, son, father bigger than son, greater than, oh, so here you go, we have our solution. Right. Right, impose theory, and wrong, because the people of God, ultimately, with some bishops who led the way, yeah. came to the spiritual discernment, this is not correct. Yeah. And the fundamental reason is because if he's an intermediary, but he is not God, who else can forgive sins but God? Who else can bring salvation but God? Yeah, yeah. And so the same thing here. Sometimes what's happened after the Vatican Council, we went from theory to practice. What theory to practice? But, but yeah, yep. And and Athanasius paid a great personal price. Oh, they for all standing did. up for the truth. Oh, they all did. Yeah, they all did. So now the question for us is, who's willing to pay the price now? Yeah, in the, in, right in the great struggle that we are going to have to face for the next few generations. Right. Who's going to pay the price? How much are we willing to allow the vine dresser to prune so we can start growing again? Yeah. yeah the, the danger with modernism is, you know, Excellency, the way you explained it, um, it lines up uh, with how Pius X called it the synthesis of all heresies because this is questioning just the, the, the almost the existence of the church itself. Right. However, much has changed since then. So, for example, if I were to hand you a hammer here, um, what can you do with that hammer? 
you can build, you can destroy, mm -hmm. you can kill. Yes. It's what you bring to that hammer that gives it its finality mm. in any given act. So historical critical method in and of itself can actually aid faith right? if it is used in the correct spirit and in the correct way. In the modernist heresy, the great fear was that spirit had that spirit, those safeguards had not yet been developed. That these elements were being introduced precisely to be subversive. And that's why they were roundly condemned. But, but for example, the uh, biblical commission, pontifical biblical commission was created soon after, right? And has allowed us a way where we could use the work of historical critical method to deepen our understanding and belief in the scriptures. But for example, okay, I'll have a little harangue here. Forgive me. <laughs> as the bishop of the, as one of the bishops on the subcommittee on the catechism, you have some of our textbooks being created and they are introducing the historical critical method in some of the high school texts. Now, is that objectively wrong? No. But one must ask the question, do these young people have any wherewithal to truly understand in the spirit that that should be received, mm -hmm. how this is to be used? Right. Right. There has to be a prudence that yes. you have to build a house. And once your foundation in faith is strong enough, right, as you mature, then there are more tools at your disposal to build a bigger house. Yeah. But if you give somebody a hammer in a hole and say, build a house, what are they going to do with it? Right. <laughs> yeah. Only harm will come of it. Yeah. So there has been in the last century a real maturity of that sense of um, tools in and of themselves in the proper context with the proper spirit can actually do good. But without the proper context and the proper spirit, it can do great harm. Yeah. So then, um, w one more question, Excellency. So then, who? Sh I know your answer is probably going to be everybody, but who should start by paying the price? Should it be the leadership of the bishops, or should it come from a, an engaged, well-informed laity? Okay. That's a great question. What's your next question? <laughs> no, the answer is simple, both. Yeah. Um, the, we've spoken about this before. The ordained priesthood exists for the sanctification of God's people so that God's people can sanctify the world. So there are different prices to be paid. Both need to pay the price. Mm. And for the leadership of the church, that price will come from within our own ranks. Hmm. Yeah. And for yourself and all of our lay brothers and sisters in the church, it will be in the public square. It will be in the secular places. It will be in your workplace. It will be wherever you happen to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for and for the uh, we the laity, um, we need to we need to be arm in arm with you, our bishops, right. and and not criticizing, but working together. Well, you know, it, um, if you are really strategic and wish to win the battle, then you have to use every item in your disposal, in your arsenal, and to be thoughtful as to how you conduct the battle. Hmm. And there is a great frustration among many Catholics that they want all-out war with secularism and relativism. Yes. And I'm much more of a guerrilla warfare sort of guy. Not because I'm afraid to have lateral frontal battle. But the truth of the matter is, I'm the bishop of Fairfield County. Entrusted to me, whether they know it or not, or like it or not, are a million souls. Yes whether you're in the church or not. Yeah. Right? So what do you claim, what do you ultimately believe is going to be victory? If we were to prevail in the public square 
and we would be littered with those who will never come back and never listen to what we have to say. Yeah. That's a limited victory at best. Yeah. So can we imagine a victory that prevails in the public square and brings as many people along with us as possible? And sometimes that means you don't use your big weapons. You do it hand-to-hand, person-to-person. Yep. Does yeah. that make sense? It does. It's uh, it's. You keep saying it over and over again, and uh, it's finally starting to sink in with me. Hopefully, I'm sure it's <laughs> sinking in with others better. <laughs> Right. So I think the criticism is, is I, many times, the criticism I get, um, I interpret as the frustration we are all feeling of having to live in a time that need not have been like this, yeah. but it is. Yeah. And the great fear we have for our children and our grandchildren and our, in my case, my great niece and great nephew, who are beginning their life in a mess. Yeah. A mess of our making yeah but Joan of Arc said I'm not afraid I was born for this right so here we are right right excellency let's let's take one more break um, and for the listeners I'll give you the phone number again to call in to pledge it's 475-215-5547 475-215-5547 alright uh, Bishop Frank will answer our listener questions when we come back Hello, my friends. Christopher Check here, president of Catholic Answers. Veritas Catholic Network is bringing souls to Jesus Christ, and it's up to us to keep their work going and growing in New York and Connecticut. So, in order to keep this going, we need you to call now and make a pledge, 475-215-5547, 475-215-5547, or donate safe and secure at veritascatholic.com. Keep listening to 1350 AM. Load the Veritas Catholic Network app onto your smartphone and continue to listen to shows such as Catholic Answers Live and Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Ajano. More local shows coming this fall. You won't want to miss them. Call now, 475-215-5547. I thank you for your prayers and your support. All right, everybody, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So, Excellency, we got a good good question. Mm-hmm. I think we always do. So I'll read it here. It came in through email, mm-hmm. and uh, they did not want their name done. So uh, here's the question. When in pain, I offer it up for the poor souls in purgatory who cannot pray for themselves. Mm-hmm. This is what I learned in Catholic school. My friend, a Baptist, tells me that purgatory is never mentioned in the Bible, and so it does not exist. What is the truth of purgatory? That is a question I have heard often in my priesthood. And for our Baptist brothers and sisters who basically are sola scriptura, right, who base their, their Christian faith on what is taught in the scripture, almost literally, yep. Purgatory would be an obstacle for them because he is right. It is not mentioned directly in Scripture. But we as Catholics believe in it because it's a logical consequence to the love and mercy of God. So it's simple. God is not almost perfect, not almost pure, not almost light. He is pure perfection, pure light, pure grace. For you and I to enter into his presence... How can we if we are still marred by our sins? Right. Even those sins that we may have committed right at the moment of our death. So purgatory is actually the logical consequence of believing that God calls us in Jesus to salvation and to a life of purity in him, of pure life, pure light, pure peace. So Purgatory is the cleansing that God in his mercy gives to us, who he has already chosen and elected, so that we can enter into his presence unimpeded. So it is not a question of whether you are going to go to heaven, but it's almost like being readied to receive the gift. Yeah. 
And the other piece to purgatory that we have to understand is our sins have consequences. So I may be saved in the Lord Jesus, but my sins wreck a lot of lives along the way that I as a human cannot undo. And so the real question here is, how in some way, shape, or form am I going to be held responsible for the consequences I cannot undo? Now, God in his mercy in the end will heal all things. But purgatory also allows for, for the temporal punishment for our sins to be lived through so that once again we come to God saved, healed, whole. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I used to point um, Protestants to the verses where Paul would talk about um, us being tested by fire. Mm-hmm. And, and like you like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Excellency. And also there's that, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about building a foundation mm-hmm. and then it gets tested through mm-hmm. fire and the wood, the mm-hmm. hay burns off. Right. Um, right. But you're, you're right. It's not directly there, so it could be. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a logical consequence in faith. And the truth is, sometimes purgatory has been poorly, poorly depicted as if it is this excruciating punishment. But in fact, it is a consequence of God's love for us, he, because He loves us. Yeah. He is purifying us, not to punish us. Right. To purify us. Right. Yeah. My son uh, recently said. He said, Dad, all I have to do, I just got to make it to purgatory. And I said, well, you better aim higher in case you miss. <laughs> well said, Steve. Well said. You know what, the Greg, when I was at the Gregorian, there was a saying, six will get you ten. And what does it mean? You were graded on a scale of one to ten. And if six was passing. <laughs> so some of these people who would frequent all the Roman restaurants every night and all this, I would say to them, well, what about studying? Oh, six will get you ten. <laughs> Yeah, and many of them failed at like five and a half. Oof. Well, because the professors were there way before they ever came to Rome. <laughs> right. They know the story. <laughs> so you're right, aim for 10, because yeah. you may get an eight. Yeah. Aim for six, you may get zero. Right, yep, yep. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, be sure to send it in to us. Uh, you can send it in on the Veritas app on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can always find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Veritas Catholic Network is there too. And I'll just say one more time that you should call immediately after Bishop Frank blesses us because, you know, like he says, amen, and then you're on the phone. The phone number to pledge and show your support is 475-215-5547. So you can keep your Catholic radio station on the air and going strong. One more time, the phone number is 475-215-5547. Excellency. Would you please give us your blessing? Yeah, and before I do, I'm going to make a plug myself. I think, you know, my friends who listen to this podcast, we have bemoaned the fact that we are trying to find effective ways to evangelize people. Well, this is it, my friends. This is one of the most effective ways. So this is the opportunity for all of us to step up and support the the radio network, not because you're featuring my program. is irrelevant, but because through everything that's done, you and I have no idea the seeds God God is planting in people's hearts. So please be generous as much as you can. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord our God, we come to you with confident and joyful hope that despite the challenges that we face and the secular world in which we live, that your joyful presence and good news of salvation will ring true in every human heart and bring us to the glory of everlasting life. And I ask that you bless our listeners and all those whom they love. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'll I'll see you next week. Thanks, Excellency. See ya. Hi, this is Cy Kellett, the host of Catholic Answers Live. Local Catholic radio changes lives. It's got power. I hear it all the time. I see the emails people call. We've got to support it. So will you please call and support Veritas Catholic Network right now? It's easy. Just pick up the phone and make a pledge at 475-215-5547. Or you can go safe and secure online at www.veritascatholic.com. 
Keep listening to 1350 AM on your radio and catch up anytime with your favorite shows on the Veritas Catholic Network app. Don't miss out on top shows such as our own Catholic Answers Live, EWTN, Ave Maria, Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. And there's three more local shows that will be hitting the air this fall. You're not going to want to miss any of it. Call now. Share it with the world. It's worth sharing. And thank you so much for your support and for your prayers.